Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians with Dr. Newfeld's series celebrating our freedom in Christ with a message entitled, Immorality is Not Freedom. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now. I wonder if you've ever seen a bumper sticker that says something like this. I'd rather be fishing or sailing or golfing. Well, perhaps we can all identify with that. There are times when we would rather be doing something other than what we're doing. Indeed, there are even times in our lives when we might feel like we're stuck or trapped and we really wish we didn't have to work for a living or perhaps even you might wish you didn't have the spouse that you have. So endless energy is consumed in meditating on the if-onlys and heightening your sense of unhappiness. If only you had made different choices earlier, or if only that one thing hadn't worked out the way that it did, if things were changed, well, you could be living on an island in the Caribbean or luxuriating in a hammock and drinking whatever it is that people drink in a coconut-shaped jar and a straw. Well, if only. And as the if-onlys grow in our lives through our lazy thoughts, we become less likely to worship God and ever less likely to give thanks in all things. For if only, then you'd be thankful. But as it is, well, you fill in your own blanks. 1 Corinthians 10 warns us about the biggest if-only group in history, Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. If only it wasn't as hot as it was in this infernal desert. If only we weren't eating manna every day. Instead, if we were only eating leeks and garlics in Egypt right now, that would really hit the spot. If only we didn't have to listen to Moses in the first place. If only we had a different leader right now. 1 Corinthians 10 is not only a picture of the biggest if-only group in history, but it's also a stern word of warning. Verse 5 tells us that God was displeased with them and that entire group of if-only people died in the wilderness and never did enter the promised land. Furthermore, two times in this passage, in verse 6 and then in verse 11, a phrase gets repeated, one that's hard to miss. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, which has the first use of the phrase I'm talking about. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Examples for us. Now, there are two key words in this text. First, would you notice the word desire? The Greek word is the word epithumia or lust. In Greek, it really is possible to have virtuous lust, as we find when Jesus told the 12 that he had earnestly desired or literally lusted to eat this Passover with you. Epithumia simply means the strongest of all desires, a desire that is so great that we can't stop thinking about it or longing for it. It's the kind of desire that overwhelms all other desires, but positive desires are good ones. In the case of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, the word is used in an entirely negative fashion. It's used to describe the want of evil, a want that simply is not eclipsed. Paul is saying what describes Israel in the wilderness is not just a want for manna, so forth. It's a want or a passionate desire for that which is evil. The second word is the word examples. The Greek word here is the word typoi, from which we get our English word type. In the Bible, a type is a real historical event 
which while it retains its original meaning, now creates a larger new meaning that arises from the old meaning. The most easy example of that is the actual promised land. The promised land is Canaan, a real place on earth with real geography and real defined borders. But Canaan, as biblical drama unfolds, begins to take upon itself a new or an extended meaning. Canaan, or the promised land, becomes a metaphor for heaven. And the journey of Israel to the promised land is a type of our journey through this earth to our promised home, which is in the heavens that God has prepared for us. That's how type is used in the Bible. Here's the point. What Israel desired in the wilderness wanderings, turning away from Moses, building a golden calf, longing for the leeks and garlic of Egypt, this also is a type for something that everyone faces today. Don't lust after what they did, says Paul, or you too will fail to curb four destructive cravings. And that's it. Paul tells us of four things that Israel lusted after in the wilderness, and just so that we know where we're going, We're going to say that a failure to thank God in our circumstances creates within each of us a kind of vacuum that gets replaced by a series of lusts that drive us toward evil, drives us away from God, and drives us to the place where we are no longer journeying towards the promised land. So let me say at the outset that the four things Paul mentions are a threat to all Christians. See, if it weren't, the point of this passage would lose its force, for all it would tell us is that some people are in danger of wiping out spiritually, but that's not the point. No, every one of us needs to be aware and understand how these four cravings, if given into, can destroy faith. It was Augustine who spoke of the folly of seeking satisfaction in created objects rather than in God. So let's start with verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, the background of this text is Israel's making of the golden calf. While Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and had been gone for some time, the people began to meditate on their situation. They had a craving for idolatry. You see, Yahweh who saved them from Egypt was invisible. But in Egypt, the idols, even though impotent against Yahweh, looked so powerful, so imposing, so desirable. I mean, how do you worship an invisible God? Wouldn't it be better to create a God like the Egyptians had, a calf idol? Now, if that seems strange because the Egyptian gods have just been defeated, nevertheless, the calf reminded them of Egypt, where the annual inundation of the Nile brought food and prosperity and a stable existence. Following after Yahweh seemed precarious. See, in my own study of Exodus 32, which is the incident of the calf idol, I find verse 5 a fascinating verse. For Aaron gave the name Yahweh to the God that they had made. Now, many Bible teachers have wrestled with this. Why the name Yahweh? I mean, why not Apis, which is the bull god of Egypt? But they don't say this is Apis. They say this is Yahweh. Now, the explanation of this meeting of the calf idol takes more time than I can give it here, but it does seem to me that what Israel wanted was the best of both worlds. Yeah, they're aware that Yahweh is real and that he's greater than the gods of Egypt, but at the same time, the gods of Egypt provided wealth and security, and all Yahweh did was bring manna every day. Of course, he did promise a promised land 
in which they would be free, but they had never seen that land, but they had seen Egypt. See what's going on? They prefer the seen to the unseen. And so it appears to me that Israel sought a kind of syncretism, a little of Yahweh and a little of the gods of Egypt. I mean, can't we have both? And in their minds, they could have both. Indeed, they crave for both. Give us the power of Yahweh and the pleasures of Egypt. Why can't I have both? If only we had both. If only because we don't have both, we're unhappy. Now, Paul is clearly drawing a parallel of this story to the situation at Corinth. I can't help but wonder what prompted those so-called strong believers in Corinth to hang out in idols' temples in the first place. They said they had the freedom to do it, but perhaps something more subtle and sinister was lurking. Perhaps they wanted both their newfound Christian faith and the pleasures of the city of Corinth, a city that was filled with idols. I mean, churches met in homes, but idols dwelt in massive temples. Why can't they have both? And that, says Paul, is a threat to all Christians. It is idolatry to want to worship the Lord and want what is evil. We can't have the pleasures of this world and the pleasures of God. See, idols are self-made gods. They're gods that we make in our image that satisfy us in the way that we'd like them to. See, whenever I hear someone say, I like to think of God as, and then they fill in the blank, I know that they're thinking of, well, an idol. Instead, they should say, I like to think of God in the way that he has revealed himself. I like to tear down my own false conceptions of God and replace it with God's self-portrait. I hope you see that idolatry is always a danger for all of us. It's the craving to worship God as I understand him. God in my image, God who makes me feel good, not the God found in the Bible. Please understand that unless you identify your evil temptation to worship yourself or your culture or the things human hands or minds have made, unless you identify this as idolatry and renounce it, you will not be able to fight this craving. I know that some of us think of ourselves as too sophisticated for idolatry, but as a matter of fact, idolatry is a danger for every single believer. Our world is confusing. Every place we turn, there are new rules and protocols. The daily news can be baffling and disturbing, and we can clearly see that there are people suffering from fear not knowing who they can trust or, or where they can find truth. Our world has never needed us to be clear on what is foundational and what is true. As a friend of Back to the Bible Canada, we know that you care about trustworthy, verse-by-verse -verse Bible teaching. Together with you, anyone seeking to know and better understand the God of the Bible and the significance of a relationship with Jesus will find accessible, relevant, and trustworthy Bible teaching through a dynamic range of mediums and resources. To know more or to offer a gift to support this cause, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of Dr. Neufeld's series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6 to 13, Paul is warning us of four evil desires, things that cancel out our faith and lead to the shipwreck of our walk with God. The first of these deadly desires found in verse seven is idolatry. 
Now he moves to the second deadly desire. It's the craving for sexual immorality. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 10, verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, Paul has already hinted strongly at this theme when he warned about idolatry. Back in verse 7, when warning against idolatry, he said, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. The idea of playing speaks of sexual relations. It means sexual play. And in Genesis 26, verse 8, it carries the idea of caressing or sexual foreplay. Indeed, idolatry and sexual immorality often go hand in hand. It did in Corinth. I have throughout this study made more than one mention of the phenomenon of temple prostitution. But here in verse 8, when Paul mentions the 23,000 being killed in a single day, he's now speaking about a different incident than the making of a golden calf. Paul is speaking about something that happened at what was called the Baal of Peor. It was the false prophet Balaam's idea that if he could not curse Israel on behalf of the Moabites, that a new plan should be struck. He suggested that the Moabite women should seduce the Israelite men, and in their sexual immorality, which was abhorrent to Israel's God, Balaam thought that God himself might curse Israel for their sin. But rather than cursing the whole nation, God merely put 23,000 of them to death. It shocked and horrified the nation. Paul's word to the Corinthians is that not only were they in danger of idolatry, there was a real danger of sexual immorality. See, in this regard, it's a sad truth today that many a pastor has scandalized his family, his church, and the watching world because of an adulterous affair. You know, whether it be the televangelist of another era or the frequent falls from grace in so many circles today, I would think by now this matter should have our full attention. I recently read of one very well-known pastor who, when his affair was discovered, said he was merely getting back at his wife for her affair. I mean, the entire thing was so ugly and so distasteful. I think it would have been best if that pastor would have simply shut his mouth and resigned. It would have been a blessing for everyone. See, the fact is, craving for sexual immorality has driven many from God. And I strongly suspect that we haven't heard the last word on this yet. If you don't learn to replace this lust with the lust for God, it will drive you from God. It could destroy your marriage, your reputation, your friends, wreck your family, kill your testimony, and the end, leave you with no passion after the living God. These things are examples for us. Now, the third deadly desire, it's the craving to test the limits of grace. I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Do you know what testing the limits of grace is? Let me try to illustrate that. Do you know what happens when you and I sin, when we prefer something to God? We step outside the boundary of grace even for just a little while. And you know what happens then? Well, initially, it seems like nothing happens. Why? Well, the answer is simple. It's found in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Well, that's what's supposed to happen. And you would know that if you were spiritually alert. But do you know what happens to those who are already being touched by the coldness of spiritual death? Well, they reason this way. They say, look, I can sin. I know the blood covers it all, even if I deliberately go on sinning. 
In Israel, this resulted in some being destroyed by serpents, and I fear that our ancient enemy, the serpent or Satan, waits to do the same to us. Now, the fourth craving. It's the craving to be dissatisfied. I'm reading verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Anyone who's ever read the story of Israel knows how frequently Israel grumbled. I mean, they hated food. They hated the heat. They hated Moses' leadership. They hated how slow things were taking to be fulfilled. They wished if only things were different than they are. You know what that is? It's called dissatisfaction with God. Look, it was God who led Israel into the wilderness. It was God who provided the food that they were learning to hate. It was God who was moving them along at just the pace that he had determined. I don't know about you, but I need to confess how often I've been dissatisfied, so often that I'm dismayed at my own spiritual condition. See, how often have I wanted things different than they are instead of thanking God for having led me to the very place where I find myself? You know, I've preached on Romans 8, 28, but I have also found myself craving anything but Romans 8, 28. You know, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Did you know that grumbling and the absence of praise is the starting block for spiritual darkness? Now that I've listed these things, you might say, I know that all of them are true of me. So what am I supposed to do? Try harder? Act scared most of the time? Feel guilty? I mean, what? See, Paul answers those questions. He gives us two lessons to prevent us from cravings that destroy our spiritual lives. So here's the first. Never be overconfident about your spirituality. Look at verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, I've been hinting at this all along, and this may seem strange to say, but confessing your weaknesses make you stronger. If you are extremely vulnerable, for instance, to pornography, you'll safeguard yourself so that you can't get near it. If you're given to false teaching and doctrine, you'll avoid every appearance of the thing. But I always mistrust people who say, well, I have no problems at all. Do you remember Peter? Lord, even though everyone else abandons you, I'm going to stay here until death. Do you remember the church in Sardis? It's in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. They had a reputation for being alive, but really they were dead. See, do you know what happens when we're overconfident in our own spirituality? We become careless, and our resistance to sin doesn't increase, it decreases. You might simply be one step from spiritual disaster. The ones I worry about most are the ones that deny that. Now, the second lesson to prevent evil cravings, count on and watch God's grace. Now, what can that mean? Verse 13 is perhaps one of the most wonderful promises in the Bible. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptations, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, please notice four things. First, you may today be struggling with a horrible temptation, but do you know that thousands upon thousands of Christians have had the exact same temptations that you have and are right now home with Christ, having successfully won the battle through trusting in Christ. Take heart, my friend. Second, 
God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. Please notice that God is not the author of temptation, but he sometimes allows you to be tempted. All the while, while Satan and the world in the flesh press you to disregard Christ, Christ will never let that get beyond control. He will deliberately set boundaries around your temptation, like a tree that's strengthened in the storm. So temptations can make you strong. So when you get an opportunity to cheat on your income tax or take unfair advantages of somebody else, your success or failure will prove your character. See, the bad news is that your character is a lot worse than you ever thought, and the good news is that God will give you strength to handle it. Number three, God is faithful. That means you can rely on him. He will help you. You can learn to rely on him in the midst of temptation. And number four, he always provides a way of escape. Now notice, he doesn't provide a way to defeat and destroy the temptation so that it never comes back. I mean, I know that some people pray, Lord, take all temptation away from me forever. Instead, you ought to pray this way. Lord, show me how to escape, to run from this temptation. Like Joseph who fled from Potiphar's wife, look for ways to run from it. Give someone the keys to your computer files or have an accountability partner who's allowed to view your expenditures or never ride alone in a car with someone of the opposite sex. I mean, to escape means that you can endure the temptation. It will not go away, not until Christ returns, but you can constantly run from sin until you run into the arms of Jesus himself. John, I found your message today fascinating on on a number of different levels and encouraging to me as well. I want to go back, though, to the first half of the message where you talked about if we imagine a God that fits sort of our preferences and not specifically based on the God of the Bible, whether we think it's a good thing or not, it's really idolatry. It's always idolatry. Thank you for saying that, Ben. You know, the human mind is an idol factory, and we love to produce idol after idol after idol. So as long as we are relying upon our understanding of God rather than God's self-disclosure of himself, we are worshiping an idol. And it's time for us to repent and say, Lord, teach me who you are, and then be driven into scripture so that scripture makes God's self-declaration. I mean, that's the only way to flee idolatry, flee into the, the text of scripture. I think it's a great question, Ben, and it tells us how prone each one of us is to this very common error that we have. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, we're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry, In Doubt, is essential. To discover more about these ministries, 
To receive Dr. Neufeld's new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust on CD for free, or to offer a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.